0: Welcome to Mom and
1: Up! With your co hosts, developmental psychologist Dr. Marty Erickson and Dr. Erin Erickson, maternal child health specialist and nurse practitioner.
2: Welcome to Mom Enough. I'm Erin Erickson here with my mom, Marty, and we're going to be talking about rewriting the rules of success for women. Our guest today is Jenna Fisher, who's the author of To the Top How Women in Corporate Leadership Are Rewriting the Rules for Success. She reveals in this book how the world faces a a once-in-a-generation opportunity to close the gender gap at the top of organizations. She's a senior partner at Russell Reynolds Associates and co-leads the firm's Global Financial Officers practice and conducts senior financial officer assignments for leading global companies across the industries. Welcome, Jenna. Thank you so much for joining
1: us. Thank you so much, Erin and Marty. It's great to be here with both of you. Well, I echo
0: Aaron's welcome to you, Jenna. And I I have a big question for you right off the top. You are a very busy woman with your uh, leadership position in the corporate world and a lot of responsibilities as we're kind of touched on in the intro. Um, What inspired you to take time out from that to write a book. I I, having, you know, balanced career and family for many uh, years, and also aspired to writing. I know that's really difficult. And I just wonder what it was that inspired you to write this book at this
1: time. Sure, sure. Well, you know, I've always had a passion for keeping women on a sustained path to professional success, starting Back when I was in college, I wrote my honors thesis on the differential in performance between boys and girls in math and science and what I learned from that research is that the only statistically significant discrepancy between boys and girls starting around the age of 9 was in their levels of self-confidence, not in their levels of achievement. And then fast forward a decade to when I started working here at Russell Reynolds Associates as a leadership advisor and I would hear all the time, I'm the only woman, only woman, only woman, from so many women that I interviewed. and So I started convening groups of female board members and CFOs, the two groups of folks that I recruit here, and that following grew over time. And simultaneously, I also had the experience countless times where I would be introduced to an incredible woman who had stellar academic credentials, had worked in a super hot company, Um, But then generally, the the trend would go after the, the birth of her second or third child, she would drop out of the workforce. And then at some point, she would want to get back in for whatever reason. She was bored. She wanted to be more financially independent. She had gotten a divorce. Her kids had gone off to college, whatever the reason. And it was nearly impossible to rejoin the ranks of the working in a financially meaningful way. And this led me to thinking that there had to be a better way of keeping women in the world of work so that women can ultimately be financially on par with men. Because I believe that without economic parity, there truly can be no equality. And so I set out writing this book last year during COVID, um, where I interviewed dozens of just incredible women around the globe to learn their stories that are both inspirational and pragmatic that others can benefit from, and also that companies can learn from. And um, I was able to do it, to the to your question about the, the busyness of my schedule, because um, in COVID, I no longer had to commute two hours a day. And so I thought, well, I'm not much of a baker. I'm not going to go online and start baking bread in these classes. What can I do with my time? I'd always wanted to write a book. And so um, that was sort of the impetus for my doing it now.
2: Well, I, I love that you used Covid, and that was your Covid project. I think we all have uh, the different things we did during that time, and what a great thing to do to move uh, the lives of women forward and to level the playing field. Speaking of Covid, I'm wondering if you could speak to the impact Covid had on women's careers.
1: yeah, you know it's it's interesting. back in September of two thousand, which, I think now that we look back, it was still some the somewhat nascent days of COVID, although I don't know that we knew it back then. But I conducted a survey of about 200 of my clients. They were about half men and half women. And I asked them one question. I said, when it is safe to do so, how many days a week do you ideally want to go back into the office? And although most people said about two days a week, the really interesting thing for me was that at the barbells, at the ends of the spectrum, it was only men, literally not one woman. Only men who said they they want to go back in full time, five days a week, like 2019, let's bring it back. And then conversely, it was only women who said that they never wanted to go back into the office with any regularity save for special events. And so I think although at first the pandemic clearly had a detrimental impact on women's careers, um... After we sort of got through the initial phase of it and got children back in school and domestic helpers were able to conduct their jobs as normal, I I realized that this new way of normal, this way of remote working that many people, not all people, but many knowledge workers can, can do, can actually be a huge benefit for families, women in particular, but also men. And just as none of us would ever attempt to scrub laundry by hand and hang it outside to line dry once the washer-dryer had been invented, we should also now be leveraging technology to empower our workers. And you know, we had so many of these tools. I mean, we had email, we had Zoom and WebEx and Slack and all these electronic means of communicating and collaborating, but we weren't using them to the full extent of their possibility. And you know, when you think about it, the system that we have of driving into offices and sitting next to each other is really a vestige from the industrial era a hundred years ago, modeled after the assembly line and created a time when managers needed to physically see their teams to ensure work was being done. But now we can measure the outputs of people's work, not the inputs. I mean, I think we all can think of somebody that used to show up in the office at seven in the morning and leave at 10 at night and Be like, oh, that Bob, he's killing it. He's crushing it. But who knows if Bob was actually doing anything other than surfing the internet all day. But now we can look at somebody's technology footprint to see what they're contributing and what value they're adding. And, you know, there are obviously new skills to be learned and muscles to be flexed in this new normal. But I think the egalitarianism we see in a Zoom world where everyone's box is the same size, it doesn't matter if you're short or tall or sitting at the front of the room or on the sidelines, it's easy to speak up and and you can look around the squares and make sure everybody has has contributed in some way, and so I think this is really fundamentally a huge shift and benefit for for lots of people, but women in particular.
2: Well, I feel that as a woman who works 100% virtually uh, as a clinician, even and um, how valuable it is to be able to you know see my kids in the morning and and then just. You know, hop on my uh, exercise bike and then throw a blazer over my tank top and start my my first visit with a patient. And so, I think it really creates a lot more balance in life and makes uh, me a little bit more accessible on the home front as well. Uh, but I just, I, I, think, like you said, this idea that that it does level the playing field. And uh, you know, when when all you see is the box and the face we're all kind of there together. And I I really appreciate that perspective because I hadn't really considered that aspect of it that, you know, we're not, you're also not seeing like, oh, what's so-and-so, what fancy shoes is so-and-so wearing versus someone else. So I think there's so many benefits in that way too, that I hadn't considered. So I really appreciate that.
1: You know, it's interesting, Erin, one of the, I had many surprises writing my book, but even after now that the book is out in the world, I'm still being surprised by feedback I'm getting and one of the things I've heard from a lot of people that I did not include in my book but that really has seemed to resonate with people is that working from home for women is also a huge time savings in in all of the things that we have to do to look good right we have there are so many societal expectations placed on women not the least of which is like you have to show up in a certain way and so the time you take to do your hair and put on makeup and Get dressed and put on fancy shoes, and you know all these things that you know men just simply don't have to do, um, and um, and so that's another huge time savings. But I I agree. I mean I think women who are solving the simultaneous equation of work and family, we define ourselves in so many different ways. Like sure we can be an employee or an executive, but we're also a mother, a sister, a wife, a daughter, a community member, a homemaker, a volunteer, and I think working from home can really reduce the friction that. So many women have felt in being unavailable to their families so much of the time. And it doesn't mean that women aren't working just as hard, if not harder. We never used to see the woman who got back online at 730 after she put her kids to bed. Who was pounding out emails till 11 o'clock at night. But when we base our managerial decisions on data and impact, looking at somebody's technology footprint, technological footprint and work output, the picture becomes a lot clearer.
2: Well, I I have to just laugh at one thing about kind of the hair and and makeup piece, because just the other day I showed up for a meeting and someone said, oh, you look so professional today. And I was laughing because I'd literally gotten off my bike and pulled my, you know, my hair was back in a ponytail. I hadn't showered that day. And I, I thought it was just so funny that like in this little, you know, virtual connection, I looked really professional to them and, you know, they couldn't, they didn't see the sweat on my, you know, forehead and whatnot. But I I thought that like, oh, that's so funny that I can just like look professional, even though I just hopped off the exercise
1: bike.
0: You know, this conversation is really um, kind of making me chuckle because Uh, my age and the decades over which I've studied many of these issues. And I'm thinking of two uh, kind of milestone things in my career that relate to this. And one was um, I worked on family policy with Vice President Gore through the 1990s when when he was vice president. And we did a big conference every year. And one year, I think the second year I was working with him, was about work and family. And all of these things you're mentioning and all these things you're talking about in your book, Jenna... Um, the, you know, this many years later, we're talking about from 1995 to 2023. Um, things about focusing on output, not input, um, not using the technology available to us to create the flexibility that that workers crave, and particularly women. You, you've enunciated very well how how uh, all the different aspects of a woman's life and relationships really affect. Um, affect work and uh, interact with work. And so, you know, we were meeting with the heads of huge companies all across the country and also talking to a lot of women who were advocating for um, more women friendly and particularly mother friendly workplace policies. And so um, I just love that, you know, this. The horrible thing of the COVID epidemic, nonetheless, has really kind of cracked open that egg in a way, um, so that I think we're we're really seeing how this can play out in very positive ways. Um, The second thing is in 2005, I was one of two principal investigators on a study of women's, of mothers, uh, mothers from all backgrounds, needs and desires and expectations and sources of stress. It was really quite a, a major study. And one thing that surprised us a little bit was that a vast majority of all of the mothers, whatever the ages of their children and whether they had chosen to stay home full time for at least, a, you know, a good chunk of time with their kids, or if they were working full time or anywhere in between, a vast majority of them would have preferred to be working part-time flexible jobs. Even the stay-at-home moms, and I thought maybe many of them would have a, you know, a principle or a value or something that led them to want to really be, I mean, stay-at-home. I know mothers are always running around no matter what they're doing, but, um, you know, I thought some of those women would have chosen that as their true preference, but almost all of them said that they would prefer to be working part-time if they could have a flexible part-time job. So, um, you know, it's just fascinating to me now that we're at this point and what you said about the people you interviewed and none of the mothers or none of the women um, saying they would prefer to go back to the office five days a week, you know, that, that caught my ear. So, anyway... Enough of that. But um, let me ask you another major question. And this has to do with disparities between men and women. Um, and you you said you've had a passion for that uh, since you were in college. I love that. And uh, that you brought in, you know, how the differences between boys and girls kind of show up when girls are nine or so. Um, the less confidence, but not less competence, I would say. Um, And so we know that there's a disparity between men and women in their job titles, um, and there also is a financial disparity. What do you think causes this economic gap, and how can this be solved?
1: Yeah, well, it's funny. You and I have something in common. I also worked with Al Gore when I was in college. I worked on the conference on development and population in Cairo. Um, on women's health issues. So amazing. um, Yeah, yeah. So but it's it's this is all it's all related. But you know, I, I went into writing this book with my own hypotheses about what I thought was going to be most salient in terms of how women can get to equality financially with men. Because right now, according to World Bank data, it will take 132 years to get to equality. And I just thought that is Wow. That's shameful when you consider the fact that 71% of high school valedictorians are women, over 50% of college graduates are women, over 50% of graduate school graduates are women, and only 9% of CEOs are women here in the United States and similar data elsewhere. And um, something I hadn't thought of before I I started writing this book and that I learned is that for heterosexual couples, the woman is on average two and a half years younger than her husband. And so it stands to reason that if that couple decides to have children and they look at their wages very pragmatically, there could be a good chance that the man is making significantly more money at that moment in time because he could have twice the experience as the woman does. But that speaks nothing to potentiality. And I think we sometimes think about careers in too uh, short-term a viewpoint And we really need to think about the longer-term potentiality of women so that women can support their careers before they get snuffed out too soon. And this is why I firmly believe that we need to normalize extended paternity leave, something that, again, I hadn't really thought about before I started to write my book. But parenting should be done by both parents. It's not enough to have paternity leave options at a company. You really need to have a culture in the organization where men feel no friction about taking That time with their families. Otherwise, what happens is you send the indirect message to women that home and hearth is theirs to manage. And there's a snowball effect where the woman has the maternity leave, the man doesn't have the paternity leave. And so therefore, from from then on out, even though women know nothing more about taking care of a child than a man does, you know, uh, biologically, everything that is related to, you know, picking the kid up from school and taking the kid to a you know, a doctor's appointment, all that stuff becomes relegated to that of the woman. And you know, over the course of years and time, that has a hugely deleterious impact on women's earning potentials. And so I think our organizations really need to think hard about this um, to to change that, um, because it's not it's not that women are not leaning in enough or working hard enough. We are. It's that the corporate ladder we've been all trying to climb so assiduously was not, built for us to climb. Especially in our high
0: heels. <laughs> well, also yes, amen to that. Although I I've never been a high heel wearer for much time, but uh, that was my my choice. Uh, I I was definitely the odd woman out <laughs> in an earlier time. Um, I just want to mention, you know, what you say about men taking parental leave, and I I couldn't agree with you more. I think this is just hugely important, and the state of Minnesota is trying to really take a huge leap uh, around that issue of of making uh you know creating a law that would really uh, require businesses to give both mothers and fathers, um, parental leave paid parental leave. But, um, There also is such an issue about men uh, feeling that they will somehow be stigmatized if they use it. And I know some of the companies, this goes back to the 90s again in the early 2000s, when some companies were really, you know, leaping to very progressive workplace policies. Um, There was a lot of evidence that men were not using the uh, leave that was available to them. So I think we have to work at this from so many levels around, uh, you know, around what our cultural attitudes and expectations are expectations are. I just wanted to throw that in. We don't have to elaborate on that, but uh, carry on.
2: Well, I, I that is so important. And I, I'm really curious about um, kind of the, the timeline of women's careers versus men's careers. And, and even in the context of you mentioning that, you know, in couple heterosexual marriages that women tend to be younger. And so, uh, you know, there's kind of this chronological timeline difference. But how do these timelines differ? And especially with what we know about women taking leave versus men not taking leave, as you were just talking about, and how can organizations adapt to support women kind of with the idea of these different timelines in mind?
1: Yeah, I think especially for women who want children, not every woman does, of course, but but that's an important delineated point because that is exactly when we see women's and men's earnings start to diverge, the point at which women have children. Up until then, men and women are pretty much on par financially. Um, But for women, there's still this biological imperative for most of getting pregnant, trying to stay pregnant, dealing with the physicality of all of that. You know, I think we sometimes underestimate, you know, being pregnant can be very rough. Um, Giving birth, recovering from that, breastfeeding, not to mention that, unfortunately, the amount of childcare that most couples still divide up is not equal, although I know that is thankfully changing and rightfully changing. But Maybe as a result of all of those factors, we shouldn't be expecting every single woman in her 30s to be assiduously climbing this career ladder. And maybe it's okay if it takes her a year or two longer to get to the next promotion cycle. And by the way, this would benefit men too, because I think many men would love to be more present parents, again, actually get to take paternity leave. The U.S. is the only developed country in the world without a federally mandated Family Leave Act. Um, you know, maybe there are elderly parents to be cared for, whatever the personal need might be. And I think we need to create the space for both men and women to lead full lives while also contributing meaningfully at work. And I will tell you as a recruiter, if you would ask me three years ago, hey, here's the resume of a 50-year-old VP, will he or she ever make it into the C-suite, I might have said, oh, you know, if they're not there already, maybe they're never going to be. And now I think, oh, my gosh, what a misguided sentiment that was, because, Maybe there are reasons why that person wasn't running the 26.2 mile sprint every single day of her career. And maybe she's going to break into the C suite when she's 55, when her kids are off in college and she's more free to travel for work. I interviewed several women in my book, To the Top, who didn't even work outside the home until their 40s. And they're hitting their stride now in their 60s or 70s. I mean, we're all hopefully living longer. So, again, I think we need to give people a bit more freedom to run the race at their own pace.
2: I'm also struck by the idea that we often ignore the value of what women are doing when they're not engaged in a career. You know, all the skills of managing a house and organizing schedules and, uh, you know, communicating with teachers. And I mean, there are skills involved in this. And I, I do think that is often ignored, the value of, of that kind of work and and what a mother might be doing when she's not actively engaged in her career uh, as a, a professional. And so I, I think that's another important thing that we need to value more as a society. I mean, the mental responsibility that women carry for parenting and child rearing is significantly greater than men. You could ask couples, you know, when is your child due for their next checkup? it's much more likely that the female partner is going to know, you know, what's, what needs to happen when, and that mental responsibility and the ability to hold all of that information is a hugely valuable skill and asset in a professional setting too. And so I really hope we can continue to move forward in valuing that time that women aren't engaged in a career path too.
1: Yeah. And I think it's just important to note that what we've all heretofore thought of as the successful career arc, you know, sort of it's, learning in your twenties and then starting to really, you know, cement your reputation in your thirties and then reaching some sort of career apex by the time you're 45 to 50 and then, you know, retiring at 55 or whatever, like that was designed by men for men. And it's not that men were trying to harm women far from it, but it was just, it came about at a time when women were not even part of the equation. They were not really for the most part working outside of their homes. And, um, and so you know, I think that we really need to think we're all again, we're living longer. So let's, let's really think about does that pattern work for women? Um, or is there another way like, that could be a really wonderful pattern sort of path that could work for a lot of people. But it doesn't mean that that has to be the way that it, it happens.
2: Well, I, I'm just so grateful for the work that you're doing, Jenna, and that you wrote this book and that you are advocating for women in this way. It's so important. And uh, I, I feel like we could talk to you for uh, hours on this topic. So I hope you'll come back sometime so we can continue to explore this very important issue. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Jenna. And again, Jenna is the author of To the Top, How Women in Corporate Leadership Are Rewriting the Rules for Success. Thank you so much for joining us and thanks to all of you for tuning into this episode of mom enough i'm aaron here with my mom marty and we'll be back again next week with another episode
1: content copyrighted by marty and aaron erickson all rights reserved visit momenough.com for an archive of all mom enough shows and many free downloadable resources on child development parenting and maternal health and well-being
2: Do you think I'll have a show called Kid Enough someday?